Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. 9-11, as well as the superstorm Sandy, just decimated New York City. We suddenly lost connectivity and we couldn't operate efficiently. The investments the whole industry has made to allow for electronic trading, remote capabilities is really remarkable and is a testament to the investments we've made over the last decade. That's Adina Friedman, president and CEO of NASDAQ. She's focused on making sure companies and investors have uninterrupted liquidity and access to the capital they need to meet the challenges of the crisis. It's all part of a larger concept she calls cooperative capitalism. She spoke with Milken Institute and Faster Cures Chairman Mike Milken on Friday, May 22nd. Adina, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. It was the very end of the 1960s. I had gone to Wall Street to work. My philosophy of changing the flow of capital and democratizing capital. When you walk by the over-the-counter trading desk, you never knew what you were going to see. There were the pink sheets, the green sheets, all these different color sheets where each market made their market. And there was no electronic system in place. And many of these traders actually preferred it where they might have the only knowledge of where markets occurred. Well, a couple years later, the National Association of Securities Dealers automated quotations began known as NASDAQ. And it changed the world in so many ways. It changed access to capital. It provided much better knowledge and openness of where markets were. People were much more familiar on investing because of that. And so give us a sense of this company you've led in good times and challenging times. And what is the sense of NASDAQ's purpose, mission, and the range of its activities? Well, thanks, Mike. Back in 1971, when NASDAQ was formed, it really was formed as a disruptor. It was to disrupt those OTC desks that you mentioned, to democratize access to capital, just like you mentioned your own mission was, and to automate trading. And if you think about 1971, it was really the beginning of networked computers. And so to have a vision, that Gordon Macklin, who was the founder of NASDAQ, had to create order out of some chaos, but also to allow for companies to raise capital at a much earlier stage in their lives and to give a much more democratized access to capital to investors and broker-dealers, regardless of where they were located. NASDAQ itself was not centered in New York, and its networked computers were governed so that you could be anywhere in the country and have equal access into the market. So it was really a true disruptor of its time. And what's amazing is today, that is the model that really exists all over the world. Markets today are global. They're completely networked. You can be anywhere and you can have access to great companies. Companies large and small can raise capital very early in their life cycle or later in, in their life. And, and the world has great transparency into the stocks all around the world. And that really was the NASDAQ vision that has played out over the last 49 years. And today we are a global technology company that serves the capital markets. We have 20 markets ourselves that we operate in the US and, and Europe, but we also provide the technology that powers over 120 other markets today. So I would love to have had the chance to show Gordon 
Macklin all the wonderful things that he started, because I think he would be really proud of who we are today. Well, I knew Gordon and everyone, particularly myself, was rooting for him to bring discipline, not only to our own firms, over-the-counter traders and market making, but everyone else's in that area. Creation of markets gives people more confidence to invest. And I know when I first went to Wall Street in the late 60s and tried to create markets, I needed to set up a trading operation because the liquidity was poor. You needed to identify thousands of potential investors. And likewise, you needed to identify thousands of number of issuers so you can have a vivid market. During the late 1960s, we actually closed the markets, not because of volatility, but because of the delivery of the certificate. Paper was strangling the financial markets where you had every time a trade went on and one person sold and another person bought, you actually physically moved a certificate today, almost 50 years later, there were calls to shut the market for a day because of volatility. And one of the things that really shines in in NASDAQ and your efforts, Adina, were to keep the markets open. Talk to us a little bit about that pressure and where it was coming from and how you saw your mission and NASDAQ's mission. Sure. And I agree that it's been quite a journey in terms of the digitization of the markets. And so just to give everyone a little bit of a flavor of the amount of volume that flows through our systems today, on our peak day, which was February 28th, 2020, we had 55 billion messages flow into our systems and we generated over 100 billion messages coming out. But if you look at just the trading of U.S. equities, that trading across all U.S. markets, so not just NASDAQ, but all of the markets together, the total volume in the markets were 19.4 billion shares. But that represented almost a trillion dollars flowing through the systems in a single day. And so that is our peak day on dollar value traded, second highest day on share volume. But it does give you just a sense of just how scaled the whole system is today. And imagine trying to do that in paper. One of the big transformative elements of the markets today has been the ability for just vast amounts of liquidity to flow globally in real time and to have trades occur in microseconds. The settlement occurs over a couple of days. I think it's an amazing element of the economies around the world. I think that the issue around that level of volatility, though, is, of course, large scale institutional investors were just taken aback by the amount of volatility and the movement in the shares. And I think there were also concerns in Congress and elsewhere, were the markets going to be able to manage through the level of volatility? Were investors going to be able to manage through that level of volume? And I think the answer was a clear yes. I think that while there were some calls for the potential for us to take a pause, let's say, or stop trading for a day or even more than a day, I think that the rational thinking really prevailed, which is that the markets are here to serve investors all the time. The markets are open to give investors constant access to the capital that they've chosen to commit into their investments. And if you close that market, you're losing that trust with that investor. It's really, to me, it's a trust factor, as well as the fact that companies at that moment had 
huge, huge needs for capital to manage through the beginning of what they were seeing was going to be a significant downturn in their business. And if we had closed the markets, they would not have been able to gain access to that capital when they needed it the most. So I think that both the congressional leaders as well as business leaders and investors all agreed that keeping the markets open was one of the most important things we could do during the period of volatility. So when we talk about the importance of markets and the access to capital that brings, in the late 1960s, I went to work for a firm that was the leading equity research firm in America. And I had pointed out, and people felt at that time that there was either investment grade or government bonds and stocks. There was nothing in the middle. But 99% of all the companies in America and most of the companies on NASDAQ are non-investment grade. And so the question was, how do we create markets in debt? And it took quite a while, but I eventually convinced them by showing them history and the performance over long periods of time and even the depression. But also, I went through their recommended stock list. And most of the stocks that they felt were the growth stocks and the best stocks in the future were non-investment grade. And most of the stocks they had on their sell list were investment grade. And so the question was, if they're willing to invest in those equities, obviously, we should be making markets in debt. And when I think of NASDAQ, Adina, and what you've been able to accomplish, the stock market, we can talk about it, but it's a market of stocks. And whereas NASDAQ is up again this year, there's great variances in how markets have done. The Russell 2000 down almost 20%. NASDAQ Biotech Index up 11%. S&P down 8 to 10%. The Dow Jones down 14 to 15%. And so understanding the market of stocks, I thought we might just step back and talk about your role at NASDAQ as it relates to some of the industries of the future. And one of them is bioscience. This is an area I've personally been involved with for 50 years. But when we think of bioscience, most people think, particularly during COVID-19, it's your health, it's medical research, but it's also the future of energy, agriculture, environment, what we're learning, bioterrorism, and in this case, viruses of bioterrorism. But it will be the future of computers based on biological mechanisms and data storage. What has been NASDAQ's approach to bioscience companies? And when I see the index is up 11% this year after being up substantially last year, how have you approached convincing them to come and list on NASDAQ and interacted with these companies? Sure. Well, the bioscience industry is actually one of the great success stories of the public markets, in my opinion. If we're going to go back in time, is when NASDAQ was formed, one of the differences that we made in the industry was allowing companies to go public before they were profitable. And at the time, that was not heard of. So if you wanted to go public, you had to be a profitable organization. And we changed that paradigm completely. And that opened the ability for new technology companies to come and go public, for new companies just trying, really progressing the economy into a new direction to come out and tap public investors. And that has been one of the hallmarks of NASDAQ success. 
I think that at the end, that then really translates very well into bioscience because biotech companies can take years to prove out whether or not what they're researching and developing ultimately works, for one thing, and has applicability in the broad market. And and yet they tap the public markets before they even generate revenue. They often are called pre-revenue companies. There's a whole ecosystem of investors out in the world that invest really solely in biotech and bioscience companies, and they have a portfolio play. They try to make sure that they might be thematic around cancer research, or they could just look at it as a basket of opportunity. They use the public markets much earlier stage than a lot of other industries do. And so NASDAQ, I think, because we've always been supporters of earlier stage companies coming in and finding public investors, we have become the home to bioscience. 94% of all biotech companies list on NASDAQ. And if you're listed on NASDAQ as a biotech company, you're included in the NASDAQ Biotech Index, which now has billions of dollars of assets under management supporting that index, which then, of course, gives them great long-term investors in their stock. So we've developed expertise in that investor ecosystem to help them target investors with our investor relations services. We give them governance tools that help them manage their companies as they're growing. We do events and other things that are geared towards that clientele. And I think all because of all of that, we have become the home to healthcare. And we're extremely proud of that. The various ETFs or other investment vehicles that people have created around your index. So that if they chose to invest in the NASDAQ biotech index, how does that work and how do you give the rights to people to launch ETFs or funds or pooling funds against your indices? We today have over $200 billion of assets under management tied to the indexes that NASDAQ creates. And so the way it works is we have probably two different flavors, I would say, general categories of indexes that we create. One are benchmark indices, and the other are smart beta indexes. And so on the benchmark side, that would be something like the NASDAQ 100, the NASDAQ Composite, the NASDAQ Biotech, the NASDAQ Semiconductor, where it's really more of a market cap weighted index. It's pretty straightforward. It's it's thematic around an industry or a sector. And of course, the NASDAQ 100 is the top 100 non-financial companies listed on NASDAQ. So it's a pretty straightforward calculus of who's involved. The great thing about indexes is that they're, generally speaking, created through a very formulaic calculation. And so it's not like you're adding a lot of your own judgment into the decision as to how the index is formed, but instead you're creating a set of rules that the index must follow in terms of what therefore is included in the index and what's not included in the index. And that gives great transparency to investors. They'll know all the time why a company's in the index or why it's not. And they can see at any moment what's in the index and what's not. We send that out every day. It really is a really transparent way for investors to choose to invest in the market, but not have to choose to do all the research on an individual stock. So the benchmark indexes are wonderful, and they've been the longest standing part of our index business. But on the newer side, you have smart beta indexes. And I think that's, in some respects, a misnomer. I like to call them outcome-oriented indexes, meaning you're choosing an investment outcome. So it might be that we have a dividend achievers index that is really looking at companies that have increased their dividends consistently over a long period of time. We have a momentum index called Dorsey Wright, which really follows a momentum model in terms of choosing which stocks are in the index. 
And then we have a series of others that we've created technology oriented indices that are geared towards other outcomes. And we're really proud of the fact we have this very diversified set now about a little under 30% of our AUM is in smart beta indices and just over 60% is in our benchmark indexes. So we create the index, but we then partner with an asset manager. So it could be a firm like Invesco or First Trust. We work with them and we turn these indexes into an investable vehicle through this concept of an exchange traded fund. And it's, I think, one of the most creative things that have been generated in our industry where it's a very tax efficient investment vehicle that you can trade all day long. You can buy in and you can buy out all day. So it's traded on the exchange. And so it's super liquid. And it allows you to make a thematic bet on the market as opposed to having to do individual names. And as you know, having been in the research business, Mike, there's so many things that can drive the success of an individual stock that you really have to do a lot of work behind that. But if you are investing in an index, you're really choosing more of a thematic way to invest in the markets. Well, I think in many ways, as I reflect on the building of the fixed income market or convertible bond market or preferred markets or equity markets that I was involved with, the creation of these markets give individuals who don't have the time, the ability, or the staff to do basic research about a particular area, whether it's semiconductors or whether it's bioscience, you've given them those opportunities. Now, when I think of your firm, Adina, I actually think of it as a technology firm. In this challenging period of COVID-19, as it's unfolded over the past three to four months, my assumption would be, since you were a technology firm, that your four to 5,000 employees were able to transition to working remotely and interacting with each other from a technology standpoint. Has that occurred? Yes, it has. So we saw this coming because of what was happening in Hong Kong and China. We have operations there. We quickly moved to restrict visitors, and then we went to a split team environment and then moved to work from home environment over a period of just a couple of weeks, really. And it was a smooth transition, I think, partly because the entire industry, frankly, has been investing a huge amount in remote management capabilities on the back of other tragedies that have occurred, particularly around the New York area. So. 9-11, as well as the superstorm Sandy, both of them just decimated New York City. And I think that the result of that was that we suddenly lost connectivity and we couldn't operate efficiently. And we all knew that we had to make sure that we were no longer that reliant on a single location. We were always proud of the fact that we were remained operational throughout both of those situations, but the industry did not. So therefore, We and the industry invested an enormous amount in allowing our employees to work from home. We tested it over many years of having them work from home during the trading day, making sure we can operate all of our markets from a home environment and replicate all of our infrastructure into a remote capability. So when this happened, it was an easy decision to allow our employees to stay safe while we were maintaining the operations of our markets. What happened in March would not have been possible five or 10 years ago. I think the investments the whole industry has made to allow for electronic trading, remote capabilities is really remarkable. And it is a testament to the investments we've made over the last decade. I think people are constantly focused on what's wrong and haven't really focused enough on what's right and what has worked. The internet has worked. 
telecommunications has worked. Power has worked. Distribution of food has worked. And so many other things have worked. But one of the things that we really underestimate, if we think about it, is how important these financial markets and anyone that had an investment anywhere in the world was able to liquefy if they needed cash, they needed to de-risk their portfolios. And I think we underestimate how important these markets are, where the millions of people, you have no idea who they are, who are either choosing to invest their pension, their endowment, their foundation. Do the people at NASDAQ fully understand this service they're offering? I think that their understanding and their passion for our mission has never been stronger. It's really been an emotional experience for us to watch our markets really operate the way they have to make sure that the flow of capital continued to flow through the economies all over the world, because it wasn't just our own markets, but all of those other markets where we provide technology, they were experiencing remarkable surges in volumes as well. And we were just extremely proud of the fact that we were able to partner with them and make sure that their markets operated seamlessly throughout this experience also. And so knowing that it's really hundreds of millions, if not billions of people were able to continue to have access to their hard-earned money. They could also express themselves in the markets by making investments in the market. So that mission is just fundamental to who we are. The ability for us to power economies through our markets is something we talk about a lot, but I think people really get it. You know, they, we lived it and, and that dedication, the passion really showed through and still showing through, frankly, every minute of the day. Our people are working extremely hard right now to make sure that not only that we're keeping those markets operational, but we're now continuing to drive for our future because we are an important technology provider to the industry. And we continue to drive to a future where we can leverage the latest technologies available to us to be able to modernize markets all over the world. I think one great example is in we worked with the CSD down in South Africa to use the blockchain to create an e-voting capability for proxies. So they can basically have perfect records of, of voting on all their proxies now through a DLT solution. And they actually had their first vote yesterday using the new technology, which in a work from home environment, when everyone is having to go in remotely and other elements of the system aren't working as well, is a great testament to how new technologies can continue to support the markets going forward. So those are the types of things that make our team just incredibly excited. I went back and looked at World War II and books written about what would be called cooperative capitalism, where government and business are joined together in maximizing the needs. And I think people underestimate what happens in a normal environment. But during the times of crisis, you often see unprecedented levels of cooperation between business and governments. And I know this ties into this concept, which you believe strongly in, and that's cooperative capitalism. Can you discuss that with us and why is it so important? Absolutely. I agree with you, Mike, that it is the level of collaboration and cooperation among the private companies and between private companies and the government has been underestimated and underreported for a long time. In fact, I remember talking to a reporter recently I said, you know, you you talk about all the things that you'd like to see go better, but you don't often talk about the things that are going well 
including, and I gave them several examples of companies that have done really great things for the communities around them and that have taken their technology or their capabilities and tried to improve the societies around them, have obviously done huge philanthropic activities in the communities around them. And he said, well, that's just not news. <laughs> it's like, well, but it's that undercurrent that's always been there. But but I think right now what you are seeing is some pretty extraordinary actions taken by companies and by governments to support their citizens. And I think in the United States, we're seeing the government take unprecedented action and move very quickly with the fiscal stimulus, as well as the Fed really pulling out every tool in the toolkit to support the liquidity and the capital flow that is so critical to making sure that companies and individuals have access to capital during this very difficult time. And then you're also seeing companies converting their manufacturing plants to create masks or other PPE or ventilators. One story I love to talk about is the grocery store chain that knew that if they bought all these vegetables and fruits from farmers where they knew that the fruits and vegetables would otherwise rot because the farmers weren't able to leverage their normal supply chains. And so they bought them all up and they donated all of that food to the food banks where they operate around the country. And I just think that is such a great example of companies coming together and saying, I'm going to do what's right for the community around me right now, because I know that if we do work together, we will find our way through it. And I think that's now, of course, making the news because it is it's a good example of capitalism working in collaboration with government to find a way to kind of broaden society. And I'm really hopeful that some of this continues. You know, this is a sea change in the way that we think about companies and the roles they play. I think that we're going to see continued dedication to communities going forward, even after this crisis is over, and hopefully also some more shared science. I think just imagine what we could create if that were to happen. Adina, I think, as you pointed out, this goes on unnoticed every day. In the case of many hotels that have been shut down throughout the country, where they have no customers, they have kept their kitchens open to feed the local community for people that need food for their food banks or children that used to be on free lunch when the schools were open or their families. Yep. Uh, it's been an amazing thing to see. In the 21st century, if you want people to believe in your company, you need to have a purpose. You need to have a mission. And not only that, your own employees need to know what you stand for. And none of us are an island. Let's talk about, for a moment, there's still a need for capital. There's a need for companies to get listed. When you go public, there's certain advantages you have. And I actually wrote my master thesis on this in the late 60s, early 70s, about the ability to adjust your capital structure, the type of company you are, and the environment you're in. So those companies that are listed on NASDAQ or other exchanges today actually have an environment over those that are not public. And many people felt that there was advantages to being private for so long. But during this period, having a public security, an equity that you can issue more securities with in need of capital is important. How are you reaching out for new listings and those companies that need capital during this period of time? First of all, I do agree with you. I think that the public markets are here for you every day. During good times, you can leverage your equity capital for acquisitions 
obviously provide equity capital to your employees so that they can own your company with you. And that's a great creator of wealth for your employee base. And then in bad times, they're there when you really need it. You might want to try to delever to de-risk your company. You might actually need to raise capital to continue your operations. And the banking system is there to support you in many respects. They also are there to help find creative ways for you to get that capital you need in the public markets because you have what we call a permanent access to capital. The public markets are there to support you during those critical times. And that is one of the great benefits to being public. We are still having companies tap the public markets and go public. The first few that came out at the beginning of the crisis were biotech companies. So those bioscience companies that continue to have great innovations that they want to bring to market. And they found that there were still very receptive investors for that. We've also seen some technology companies come out. And we actually have a pretty healthy pipeline of listed candidates over the coming weeks and months that continue to see the public markets as their path to the future. That sense of access to permanent capital has never been stronger in their minds. I do think, though, to be honest, that it's really a combination of the private markets and the public markets that make the economy work. So I don't want ever to diminish the role of private capital. I think that early capital coming into companies when they're first forming and earlier in their stage are absolutely critical to allowing that fast innovation. I think that also there are some companies that are misunderstood by public investors, and so they can go into private equity hands and get rehabilitated or change in a way that's harder to do out in the public domain. So there's roles for private capital and public capital, but I do think the public markets have really shown through as being here and available at all times. And that's one of the key testaments to who we are. Well, Adina, your experience at Carlisle gave you a great appreciation of what private equity does. And at this time, there are far more companies controlled by private equity in America than are public. And that's probably the case now around most of the developed economies in the world. But it's during a crisis that quite often these challenges come forth that we see the advantages. And the United States as a whole, really beginning in the late 1970s, has been financed by public and private markets, as you've pointed out, with your vast experience in both of them, that the banks today own a very small percentage of bank loans, as most of them have been held now by the ultimate investor, whether they're insurance companies, pension funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, mutual funds, etc. What have you been hearing from your companies and investors during the past few months? It's been really interesting to talk to different companies. I think that the companies that are impacted heavily by the virus, so any company that I call is in the experiential industry, right? That could be a restaurant or or an airline or a hotel company or someone who creates experiences for people. I think they've obviously been just extremely hit by everything that's gone on. They are working as hard as they can to support every effort to create a safe way to reopen the economy. And they are also working very hard with the banks and with the markets to find ways to sustain themselves throughout this time and with the government, of course, to sustain themselves throughout this critical situation. And then you talk to other companies like in tech where they've had just this surge of activity flowing through their systems. They've had to scale up their systems extremely quickly to support the demand. And they've noticed that their technology is going to be extremely relevant, not only throughout this crisis, but into the future. And so there's really kind of a tale of two cities there. I also would say that 
that every single one of those CEOs is on a common mission to find a path through this. And so whether you're doing well or you're really not, there is a common goal, which is to find a path forward and to make sure that the economy is able to sustain itself. So that's been pretty remarkable in, in terms of all the CEOs working together. On the investor side, at first, you could definitely say that there was some panic selling, no doubt about it. And then there was this moment of rationality, which was, okay, well, let's really think about how long this is going to last. You're seeing the Fed come in with a lot of support. You're seeing certain companies actually do well. And so there started to be a more discerning attitude towards, well, how do I reprioritize my portfolios? And then, of course, there's the common view that we all know that once we get through this, once the fear is gone, because there are valid treatments that, of course, the Milken Institute is helping to support and or a vaccine that is effective, that fear will be gone. And as much as we like to read about oh, how the world's always going to be different, I actually think that a lot of things will go back to being the way they were. We are going to want to go out to restaurants. We're going to want to see our friends. We're going to want to go to concerts. We're going to want to travel and see the world. I mean, all of those things will come back. I think the key is to make sure that the economies are in a condition to that people can afford to do that. That's the big challenge that we're all trying to work through in the hope that we can see our path to the other side of this without too much economic damage. But it's been quite a remarkable time. But that sense of mission across every element of economy has been there. And I've been really impressed by that. One other area, Dean, I want to touch on, and, and that is equality for all individuals and equal opportunity. The Milken Institute and our other activities on a dedicated basis have been very focused around the world for opportunities for women. And what I have noticed in this effort is there's kind of a generational issue. My wife has a different view in that she grew up in that period of time where there were few women in professional schools. But our daughter has a total different experience. She sees her friends, half the class in business, medical, law school are women. What has been your experience? When I went to business school, it was only 25% women. It was noticeable that there were not a lot of women in the school. And most of the women, at least at that time, were going into the fields of accounting or human resources. So there were very few of us in the product management and financial classes. I used to have debates with my father about that because the investment industry is very clear that they have a long road to go to really create a more open environment for people of different backgrounds, including women. That surely was the case. And we actually had a lot of dinner discussions about how do you accelerate the change? And it was a hard thing to do. But once I got into the financial field, it's been a great experience. People at NASDAQ have always been very supportive of the needs of the individual, I think is really the right way to say it. Well, I worked part-time for four years after my kids were born, and my manager let me do that. He promoted me twice during that time. So that just kind of gives you an example of how advanced their thinking was even back in the 90s. I think that in general, being in a technology company, being in a regulated business, so there's a lot of risk management capabilities, as well as the financial skills, marketing and other things. There's just a lot of different opportunities for women to excel at a place like NASDAQ. But then going to Carlisle, the tone from the top was excellent. They really were extremely supportive of finding ways to bring more women into the firm and give them the right experience there. So it's been a change. I think it's gone from 
talking about it to starting to demonstrate it to really walking the talk in our industry. And there is passion around creating more opportunity, not only for women, but for people of all backgrounds. One of the things that NASDAQ's done in recent years is we've launched our diversity, inclusion, and belonging team. We now have 10 affinity groups within NASDAQ, or we call them employee networks, of people with different histories. So it could be Southeast Asian employees, or it could be parents. We have an accessibility network. We have a green network. We have a women's network. We have a network for African-Americans and other backgrounds. And so I think that really helps because not only do they find a group of people that they can talk to and share common experiences with, but they also then can give me a better understanding, at least, of what it's really like. And what do we need to do to do more to support each of these groups so that they feel like not only do they feel included, but they really feel like they belong at NASDAQ. And so I think that level of communication and organization among the employees, I think has been hugely helpful to NASDAQ, but I think it's happening all over the industry. I do believe that those types of things are making a big difference and opening our eyes to the benefits of diversity. There are huge benefits to diversity of thought diversity of backgrounds, the ability for us to understand our customers better by having people inside our organization that are akin to our customers, I think is just hugely important. So I do think there's been a lot of progress. The ability to see the world through other people's eyes is exceedingly important in success, particularly for a leader. I want to thank you for joining us today. I also want to thank you and your team for all you've done to provide capital to companies and businesses throughout the world and to keep financial markets working not only for NASDAQ and your markets, but for all those markets around the world that run on your technology. Thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or MilkenInstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.